Today on Cyberwork, my guest is Roderick Jones, Executive Chairman of Concentric, and he's here to talk about security risks facing content creators, influencers, gamers, and streamers on Twitch, YouTube, and elsewhere. Online harassment is often seen as part of the package if you're going to work in a public-facing streamer community, but Roderick knows that this isn't inevitable and it is fixable. A future without a shrug shoulders approach to online abuse? Find out how today on Cyberwork. Welcome to this week's episode of the Cyberwork with InfoSec podcast. Each week, we talk with a different industry thought leader about cybersecurity trends, the way those trends affect the work of InfoSec professionals, and offer tips for breaking in or moving up the ladder in the cybersecurity industry. Roderick Jones is the executive chairman of Concentric, the largest, most influential privately held security firm on the West Coast of the United States. He began his career with Scotland Yard's special branch focused on international terrorism and the close protection of a prominent British cabinet member. His work during this period included the design and delivery of security for a number of high-growth Silicon Valley companies. In 2016, Roderick also co-founded and became the initial CEO of Rubica Inc., a cybersecurity company providing advanced protection to individuals through the provision of localized network security. Roderick has consulted widely on next-generation security projects with the United States military and intelligence community, notably the impact of online gaming and virtual worlds, as well as the threat of computer hacking to financial markets. He's been asked to brief at the White House, Downing Street, and the Pentagon on a variety of national security topics during his career, and is a frequent guest speaker at national and international conferences. Uh, Roderick has a master's degree in history from the University of Cambridge and spends his time helping run a community soccer team in San Francisco. So if you've ever watched a Twitch stream or a YouTube Let's Play video, especially live, uh, you've probably noted or maybe even taken part in the ongoing chat bar that's happening. Uh, if you watch it, a, a cursory scan of the onrush of comments is a study in tone contrast. Maybe eight people are saying, this is great, you rule, or I can never complete this level. So excited right now, ranging to, why are you so bad at this game? And then sometimes it's even worse. Online gamers, content creators, streamers, all deal with massive sensory input from quote unquote fans, ranging from ebullient pra uh, praise to hostility and even harassment and death threats. Uh, so we're gonna talk about all this, including the security measures for live streamers and content creators and the psychological component of being so accessible to your audience. Roderick, thank you for your time today. Welcome to Cyberwork. Great to be here, thank you. Uh, so I like to start out getting a, a sense of uh, your your journey. When did you be first become interested in computers and tech and, and what, what got you excited about cybersecurity? What was the, the initial draw? Um, I think uh, like a lot of uh, people from Britain my age, um, I, I got a home computer when I was 11, 10, mm -hmm. 11, okay. uh, and started programming it uh, because um, that was how you played games. Uh, there wasn't yep. a, any other way to do it. You got to make so, them yourself, uh, yeah. You made made them made them myself, and yep. uh, spent a lot of time saving them on cassette tapes and things like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, that progressed. Um, computer science wasn't offered generally in schools at that time, but okay. I think I did the first um, GCSE in it, um, and sort of wrote the <laughs> wrote the syllabus almost. So it was in that generation of people that grew up programming the, that that first generation of personal computers. And then professionally, I was just very computer literate when I went into national security work and and did a few uh interesting cases um around digital forensics so i did mm, one of the first mm -hmm. digital forensics cases uh, around mm. espionage which was uh, really interesting when you had this moment where a judge is asking you what the internet is and you're holding a piece of paper with a printout on it. So that was, yeah. <laughs> that was kind of and trying to get that in evidence. So that was, this was, yeah, that, that ages me tremendously. Right. Uh, and then actually, you know, I really, 
I wouldn't say I was ever drawn into cybersecurity. I mean, that's I'd sort of correct that in some ways. I was always much more interested in the offensive capabilities and the intelligence mm. ca- capabilities of uh, the information that was being poured into these platforms. And uh, okay. uh, uh, yeah, particularly in the early nineties, it was it was a sort of a wild west. So, uh, oh, sorry, the mid nineties, it was a wild west. So, yeah, that that's mm-hmm. that's, that's my own journey with technology and, and computers. Uh, started okay. at a very young age. Now, were you scouted by you know your your job with uh you know the the intelligence industry were you scouted because of your computer acumen or were you already doing the work and then you said oh by the way i know all this stuff because i've been doing this since i was 11 years old i think a lot of it was um you know in a lot and, and again I've, I've heard this from many other people my age um you know computers would arrive in these offices in the mid 90s and and it was like okay <laughs> who knows how to work this you yeah. know and, yeah, yeah. And, and so you got volunteered to do this stuff that yep. um you know really uh you became the the sort of team expert on it uh, whether you wanted to be or not just because you knew how to operate it so um you know that that was I don't think it was particularly scouting. There wasn't an understanding, except in very specialist places, around the power of offensive um, cyber at that point. Um, you know, there was obviously computer hacking going on. Uh, right. I'd been, uh, you know, from the US through to the UK, but um, it wasn't understood as a strategic power position. Um, but the computers arrived, and, and if you could fit the printer and get things to print out, you were you were the expert. Um, and I yeah. think that replicates a lot of people's journey of my age as well. For sure. Now, um, uh, what was, what, yeah, what was, what was the, uh, how did the landscape differ at that point? Like you said, apart from, uh, you know, being one of the few people who actually knew the, the computer and the internet and, uh, you know, and I, I say this all the time on the show, but uh, for younger people, it seems impossible to remember a time when it seemed like not everyone was going to be on the internet eventually. Like it was always going to be kind of a niche and specialty thing. Um, but I mean, do you have a sense of like how the, how the threat landscape has changed since the mid nineties? Um, do you have any sort of like broad sweeping generalizations about, uh, what's, oh, yeah, what's different yeah. now in terms of that? I, I would say, I mean, I think, um, to be digitally illiterate now is, is a real disadvantage, I think. Yeah. And we have to think about that as a society. I would just say that, you know, if you're say homeless in Seattle or San Francisco and don't have a phone, um, how do you even know when the bus is coming now? You know, yeah, I mean, that's sure. a real difference, right? So oh, yeah. to be digitally disconnected is, is, uh, is completely, um, problematic. And then I think yeah. the other thing I would say, the big arc, the big generalization is that so many of the systems I've just described, you know, growing up in the nineties and then into the early two thousands, if you were on the leading edge at that time, um, so many of those technologies are, are completely old and decrepit now in the computers. And that's actually where a lot of our digital insecurity comes from in the West is that we were the first adopters of many of these things. So yep. you have hospitals running, not literally Windows XP, but almost, you know, just about, so, yeah, yeah, you know. So I think that, and and, and obviously countries that have, have caught up and overtaken the West and and haven't had don't have that legacy IT. Yeah. Uh, I think um, that that's a big arc. I think that we don't truly understand, especially with SCADA systems and things like that. They've they've, yeah. they've been in there such a long time uh, yeah. that the vulnerabilities are, are, are quite intense. I think in those systems, and that covers such a, a swath of of different 
areas from infrastructure to government to local municipalities to healthcare to finance. And it's, yeah, it, I mean, once you start going down that road, boy, you get vertigo very quickly. <laughs> so, Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so your career arc is pretty interesting. As we said, it started in security intelligence, both in the U.S. and the U.K., into your role at Rubica Inc., which provided high-level security solutions for individuals as well, of course, as your work with Concentric. So what was the impetus from moving from an intelligence counterterrorism frame into a, a, a you know private sector cybersecurity area? Yeah, I, I, I think uh, I always like to fight the next war, not the current one, and mm-hmm. uh, intellectually anyway. Um, I think counterterrorism reached its apex probably around that period, 2010. Yep. Um, you know, the sophistication of international terrorist groups had certainly been defeated, I would argue, a long time, you know, at least 10 years ago. And, and sadly, in the West, mm-hmm. we continue to sort of, you know, spend a lot of resources on terrorism that I, I don't think it necessarily warrants. But for myself, um, I actually gave a, a talk at Sundance Film Festival, and it was mm-hmm. it was. Um, it was a sort of a provocative statement uh, I was thinking about. And I actually asked what what would the Second Amendment look like in cyberspace? And I was very interested. I mean, America is a country of individual rights and uh, focuses tremendously on the individual. So, you know, how, how the Second Amendment came about, it's a it's a British thing that got translated into, into America, as we know. And it was around yep. essentially it's an enlightenment idea that if we give you individual rights, but no means to protect them, we've essentially given you nothing. You know, the sort mm-hmm. of enlightenment philosophers understood that. And what is a right? Well, it's a custom that then becomes ingrained in law and all those kinds of things. And I, yep. I just reflected on the fact that we'd been given so much in the digital space, but very little means to defend ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so I, I sort of uh, gave that speech and then sort of left the left the festival thinking, gosh, you know, I should probably try and do something about this and maybe build a company to provide some kind of defense in yep. the digital space. Now, I, I would say that the thing that I probably uh, got wrong about that was um, cybersecurity for individuals is a, is a really nuanced um, topic. And, and, and I think it was privacy really that people were worried about losing as much as, you know, the actual yeah. the individual hacks onto people, uh, right. didn't really um, emerge in the way that I'd kind of anticipated. Whereas of course the breaches of privacy and the breaches of, you know, whether knowingly or unknowingly losing your data, um, through privacy, um, issues, I think, is, is is the thing that's exploded rather than sort of the offensive hacking of your, you know, personal computer, but which, which is still an issue in some areas, but not as pervasive as I, I'd anticipated. But that that was where that journey began. I just became mm. very interested in um, the fusion of the physical and the digital, something I'm still fascinated by, actually. Um, so, um, you know, that, that was where that uh, company, it came from that idea and that speech. Uh, so to that end, can you tell me about your day-to-day work as the executive chairman of Concentric? What are some tasks that regularly occupy your day or, uh, you know, and also what are some jobs or tasks that you enjoyed doing but had to put away when you sort of moved up the ranks of the company? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the company Concentric uh, has, has always uh, been excellent at tactical delivery of security. And I, I certainly enjoyed that um, mm-hmm. at the beginning of the company, the sort of the creation of intelligence reports and the operations and traveling the world doing those things. But of course, when you 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 have to run the company, you can't zip around the world or be spending yeah. all your day writing reports. So, so right. you have to put those things away. And I think... Um, 
my uh, the CEO of Concentric, he would smile when, when I said that because it's one of his mantras. But what we spend or what I spend a lot of time on is thinking about relationships and actually the very human connections the company has right. and um, really trying to think about the future. Uh, and if you're not, we're, we're living in such a fluid environment right now, both politically and socially and technologically, mm-hmm. that if you're not wondering and thinking about how to stay relevant in that space and somebody's not doing that for the company then then you're going to have some real problems if you're in the market and of course we're in the market so um I, I, that's what i spend a lot of my time on is is where what do we build what how do we position ourselves how do we how do we provide solutions to keep our, our clients uh, safe and that is has moved tremendously over the past two or three years from where it was and so that it sounds to me like there's a fair amount of uh, sort of cutting edge research, you know, that you're reading and and absorbing to sort of get a sense of like the trends and so forth and what's what's new in tech, what's new in in you know uh, hacks and so forth. Is, is that the case? You're you're, yeah, you're just sort yeah. of keeping up with everything that's happening right now. That's right, and and mm-hmm. scanning the, the environment. But I, but I would mm-hmm. say that the skill there, if there is one, is mm-hmm. is to almost paraphrase a sort of former Churchillian uh, sort of comment. You know, that he, I think he once said, if I'd have had more time i'd have said less yes, and right. i think you know with the uh, array of things going on there like to distill it and to make it make sense for a business and for a security business you have to um you're constantly asking for to simplify a facial recognition is a, a good example of that it's a huge topic on both sides privacy concerns but it obviously has tremendous benefit on security surveillance how you play in that space mm-hmm. uh, and the transformational capabilities of that um are, are tremendous but you know simplifying it and making it a product or a, or even a something that we could use is it takes quite a bit of time and effort to to get right through um policy and and law and and technology is do you have anything about your job that keeps you up on sunday nights or in the evenings it's probably the same thing that uh, uh you know i said earlier it's relationships really it's it's just yeah. understanding that while uh we're still um even though we've grown tremendously it's still, we're still very uh uh, you know, dependent on the people that work with us and for us uh, and around us. And so, um, you know, focused on those things is, uh, is it, those are the things that still keep me awake at night. Yeah. So the focus of today's episode is one that I've, I've been wanting to have on the show for a long time. So I'm glad you, you suggested it. So we're, we're talking about the world of, of gamers, streamers, bloggers, influencers on platforms like YouTube and Twitch, uh, and their unprecedented accessibility that users have to them. So as Laura Hoffner also of Concentric put it, quote, as gamers and influencers be, uh, bring viewers into their living rooms and or bedrooms during a live stream games or social media stories, participants can feel personally connected to the event even though they are doing so along with tens of thousands of other fellow viewers. A crossover into obsession is enabled by the ease of information about these individuals, including physical addresses, familiar contact information, and patterns of life details, such as frequented stores, gyms, and friends' houses. So furthermore, the, the face-to-face accessibility that live chat affords means that both effusive praise and also abuse and even death threats are allowed to flow uninterrupted into the creator's personal space. So Hofner continues, uh, unfortunately, the influencer industry is lagging behind on not only acknowledging the security threat posed by their unique accessibility, but also dealing with stigma and technology limitations that prevent adequate holistic response options for the virtual threats that are directly turning into physical violence. This is a huge topic. Can we start by talking about some of the main red flags that you've seen around this topic so far, maybe some noteworthy cases or stories showing the way that this unusual access to people has turned bad? 
Yeah, I, I, you're, you're right to say it is a huge topic, and I, I think it's the topic of our times. And yeah. um, I've been thinking about it uh, and, and looking for it for a long time. And I think uh, if I start um, at the beginning and, and what I consider to be the first really interesting emergence of this and uh, was around anonymous and project genealogy and mm-hmm. essentially why that was important was was I, I thought you know the first time that a, an esoteric threat jumps out of the internet and becomes real mm-hmm. uh, and goes into real space um, then you know we we have uh, a new reality and I think um, for those that aren't quite aware of it I'll just you know, so sort of paraphrase what that was. It was a, you know, Tom Cruise's uh, had had made some comments about Scientology um, that were published on YouTube. Um, Anonymous got involved uh, after YouTube pulled it down uh, under request from the Scientology uh, community uh, to to essentially you know complain about free speech and all the rest of it. And then so this anonymous movement began around that. And and then but but you know we have some Scientology um, places in San Francisco. You would then see people wearing the Guy Force mask standing outside you know the churches protesting. So it was this first fusion of. Um, uh, you know, kind of um, physical um, meeting digital. So it jumped out the internet. And and actually we worked with YouTube at the time because they then had actual physical direct uh, threats to the to YouTube. And they had, there was some big, there was a combination of DDoS attacks and physical threats to the organization uh, on those topics from the anonymous group. And so that, I think that even though, uh, sort of that starts the 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 kind of conversation, and then you get into the environment around social media and influencers, yep. and I think game GamerGate and the kind of things that became um, apparent around that in terms of doxing and and then swatting these kinds of like kinetic activities associated with people prominence on the internet then having uh you know some kind of physical threat happen to them um and then in recent times i think there's been cases of prominent gamers dr disrespect was one a couple of years ago whose house got shot up after some dispute on a on on a game and then i think recently last year there was a female gamer brooke b uh, from 100 thieves who who actually publicly posted about having a stalker on the internet so so Mm -hmm. this is this is the tip of the iceberg if you talk to people at twitch and and these things these things are, are, are absolutely happening all the time now i think where my where i've changed my mind or sort of adjusted my thinking is that what I thought was the important piece of this was like the, uh, that essentially you have this new, uh, you know, this new environment, um, lots of threats being said. And, it, and they're really important when they become kinetic, meaning that they're really important when a physical threat is manifested in real life. So somebody mm-hmm. does something to you in real life. But actually, I think I got a look that a little bit wrong. And mm-hmm. um if you think about Chinese warfare theory, there's this big uh, Chinese uh, doctrine book that came out in the 90s, Unrestricted Warfare. And I think that's what's happening in this space. It's not just kinetic. It's information warfare. It's hacking, reputational attacks, um, all kinds of things um, that are happening in this space that really kinetic is just one element of it, probably the rarest. But the reputational attacks, financial attacks, the information attacks, the stuff that has been posted on, on open and dark net forums about these people and, and just yep. trying to change the conversation with disinformation um, is, is, is 
is serious. And, you know, if you're, if you're relying on your reputation and it influence a space and that's being attacked, um, you know, video fakes, deep faking, all these kinds mm-hmm. of things, it's, it, that really is the environment. And so, um, I think I've changed my thinking on that quite substantially. And, and, but what I would say in terms of a, a way to think about it, what's happening really, it's like a marketing funnel. The more people you influence, of course, that group is large. And then the more negativity that's in that pipeline so if a uh, a theory develops about you being a bad person for example you, if a hundred thousand people believe it ten thousand people might do something about it online and then mm-hmm. you know you get down this funnel it's a classic marketing funnel and then right. you know potentially at the bottom of the funnel you'll have like five or ten people actually do something very negative yes. but either yes. in an information space or a physical space so so i think that's how i see this now and i think it's that creation of these massive marketing funnels of threat that mm-hmm. is has mm-hmm. changed the environment so that's how i would visualize it and think about it right now uh that's great so uh i mean it's not great but it's it's a great way of thinking of it so thank you but um before before we delve too far into the security implications uh, i want to talk about another point brought up before the show and this relates to what you're saying here but uh is one that you know just just by pure me watching these things I've seen in it. Laura Hoffman said again, quote, desensitization is expected from influencers when negative comments and responses are expected to be seen, allowed, and anticipated even on a mass scale. Because that baseline of negativity is established, the threat escalation is significantly higher while also being allowed to, quote, drown in the noise. So I could probably just talk for hours on this one point, but I want to ask you about it from a purely psychological standpoint, because I see two contrasting things happening in the space. One, uh, the creator's feel to some viewers like close friends. The term parasocial friendship gets tossed around a lot, which can lead to the feeling that said gamer or streamer will want to chat with you and just you personally, even if you've, they've never met you. Uh, conversely, the anonymity of the internet means that you can fairly anonymously say the most egregious or even threatening things to a person, not only because it's easy to do so, because it feels like this isn't a real person. They're just pixels on your screen. So what are your thoughts on the ubiquity of this ease of access to people who make and do things for large audiences? Yeah, I think um, the desensitization uh, has happened across society. And I think there does need to be a course correction there. Um, mm-hmm. You know, famously, um, the, the sort of some of the original thinkers and fathers of the modern internet, Stuart Brand, who's a San Francisco guy, mm-hmm. um, said information wants to be free. And right. well, maybe it shouldn't be, you know? <laughs> so yeah, maybe yeah. there's a course correction coming there. And yeah. I think actually you have to um, think about um, how, how, do, how do we, yeah, moderation doesn't really work in some ways. Yeah. I mean, you know, lots of these tech platforms have mod- very sophisticated and uh, qualified moderation teams, the trust and safety departments in mm-hmm. most of these places now are, are, are up running and, and very good. But, but language is nuanced and it's very hard. And I'm not entirely sure that the answer is going to come from the environment itself, you know. And and I think that the desensitization is true, that the, the mass content that, say, a female influencer gets mm-hmm. um, misogynistic content content of a sexually threatening nature it's just yes. it's, it's just massive so that desensitization has happened now what i actually think um might be useful <laughs> in terms of changing some of this dynamic is possibly blockchain um hmm. and you know and, and just in the way that people are rethinking how you know, the internet destroyed journalism in some ways, uh, or yeah, it's one argument because it took the ads away and, and all the rest of it. So that mm-hmm. so the business model for journalism destroyed. Was, the, the business model for, you know, 
all of the social networks and, and lots of this stuff is the more outrageous you are, the more, you know, kind of, um, you know, the more the algorithms promote you and all the rest yeah. of it. Now, yes. if you had to pay to speak <laughs> with a microtransaction, mm-hmm. you might think twice about it, right? Um, yeah. It's just put, I, I don't know if that's a, a, a total answer to this, but I know that, um, you know, Twitter just introduced or just announced it was introducing a big blockchain initiative to look at some of these kinds of issues because they know that, you know, you know, people do hide behind the, it's not even anonymity in some cases. It's just the fact that the, the consequences aren't directly in their face, that yeah. uh, adding some extra steps and adding some, well, actually you have to pay to say that kind of thing in some way right. might be, might be an interesting solution to this. Um, so anyway, I, th- I think there's, there's some interesting people working on some interesting stuff. There's a new department at the media lab at MIT looking for pu- public discourse, mm-hmm. um, systems that can be more, uh, you know, uh, less vitriolic. So, uh, you know, there's lots going on there, but, I, but I think the desensitization is, is something that we shouldn't accept as a, as okay, no. well, it, 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 it's gone now. We should try and introduce some, some controls back into language and speech on, on the internet. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also I, I, the, the, the other part of that is that desensitization isn't always happening. Like it's, I, I think we forget that a lot of, content creators like you if you're an author you have to be on twitter like it's your your publisher is going to tell you to do it if you're a blogger if you're this or that absolutely you have to be in the social sphere and because of the way the social sphere works you have to be sort of unless you like hire someone to like handle your social media accounts and like that, that can wear down even the most thick-skinned people so um you know related to uh what you're saying before do you think this sort of necessary accessibility is just business as usual from now on or will there be some sort of course correct in the future where we're like i can't believe like everyone was accessible to everyone for these couple of years um I think I think it's the the norm now. Uh, yeah. I, th- I think I think it will continue to be as well. Um, there's obviously a democratizing element of this as well, mm-hmm. you know, that that is very powerful and I think very useful. Um, so I, I I don't think we'll look back and I don't think it will change. I think um, part of it is because. Uh, you know, we're operating in these very uh, fluid environments right now. This year, particularly, I think it's been very culturally fluid. Lots of people leaving jobs, starting new jobs, yep. uh, pandemic, things like that. And so the conversations are, are necessary in many ways. And I think uh, people do look to uh, influencers, for want of a better description, or just people in their community. And, that, and the idea of community now has exploded globally. Uh, you might have more in common with someone in another country that follows a sport that you follow than someone yep. that lives down the street. So, so yeah. I, I don't think we'll, we'll, we'll change the way we do things. But I do think, as ever, with technology, policy, law, and all the rest of it needs to catch up to, to, to what we've created. Um, and, and it's, you know, I, I don't think too many people would disagree with that. So that, that leads nicely into what I, what I wanted to ask you about next. And, and point made was that virtual attacks are below the threshold of concern and no direct correlation, correlation is anticipated to involve in, evolve into a physical threat regardless of the data proving otherwise. So uh, when physical threats do occur, there's limited re, re, recourse that influencers can take. So 
let's t- start talking about what needs to be changed. If you were given a magic gavel or the key to the internet or whatever, what changes would you make in the way that these types of streamer creator platforms are run in terms of feedback, accessibility, et cetera, to reduce the amount of harm that can be volleyed uh, at these types of creators? Is there a way of making this safer while still retaining the, the uh, accessibility? You mentioned blockchain and you mentioned like micropayments for comments and things. Do you, from a, a purely security perspective, uh, do you have any other sort of things that you would like to see happen either at a legal level or procedural level? Yeah, I, I think, you know, again, we haven't, uh, I, I actually think there are some technological innovations, obviously mentioned blockchain that might be interesting in the future, but frankly, mm-hmm. um, you know, policy law uh, and the capabilities of those things combined could make a difference right now. I'll give you an example. Um, you know, in, in sports, um, uh, you know, I'm, a, I'm, I'm as you mentioned in my intro, I'm a particular soccer fan, and and yeah. and it's been a serious problem uh, during the pandemic that soccer players moved into the influencer status. So mm-hmm. without crowds and stadiums, they essentially became virtual characters. Now, one of the downsides for this was uh, a, a real spike in racist abuse against black players in, yep. in certain um, leagues, and. I there is there is laws in in those countries certainly a country I'm from Britain uh, against hate speech and against racist speech and yep. that it, once the law enforcement agencies were tasked with tracking those people down who were pouring uh, racist abuse onto players they make arrests you know it's mm-hmm, against mm-hmm. the law yeah, um, yeah. now and so you know to go back to the arc of this conversation in some ways. Uh, it's 20 years of people have had 20 year careers in, in like the FBI in America now and have just done counterterrorism. And for the past 10 years, they could have been doing something else, you know, because I don't, I, in my view, I think, you know, there's, there's, there's some changes that need to happen in sort of resources there because mm-hmm. the laws, it's a little trickier in America given the freedom of speech. Um, controls here and, and there's no hate speech laws and things like that, but mm-hmm. there's still, Policy law can catch up to the vitriol poured out onto the internet and can make certain kinds of things unacceptable and people can be prosecuted for them. So I don't think that's impossible. Certainly violent sexual threats aimed at influencers, mm-hmm. people making those uh, on, on the internet uh, should be prosecuted and caught up with. And I think the technical capability exists to do that. And mm-hmm. it's just a question of policy and political will to go and do it. Um mm-hmm. There are issues in this country around the political will to go and do that. I don't think if you look at Europe, that definitely isn't the case. And mm-hmm. some prosecutions are starting now against um, people that made online racist abuse against uh, prominent sports people. So, yeah. so that so there is a contrast there. It, it, the other countries show this can be done uh, right. with policy and, and law. Yep. It's it it doesn't necessarily that it, you know you don't have to hand, throw your hands up and say oh it's just the internet we can't the, do anything about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. internet is we've tried nothing and we're all out of ideas. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And interestingly, actually, you know, when uh, fans were allowed back into stadiums in the UK, you know, the the controversy still exists around racism in the grounds and things, but then. Mm-hmm. the weight of, uh, you know, program against the racists in the ground, you know, 50,000 people disagree with racism, 10 want to be racist. That weight changes it again. Whereas, yeah. whereas you get outsized influence for outrageous comments on the internet than you, you would in real space. So, so it is different. 
Yeah. Now, um, and uh, I know one thing I've seen on, on Twitch and other places is is auto censoring of words that could potentially be used as as threatening or even just spicy words like simp or incel. Uh, this suggests mm-hmm. that in the absence of a larger solutions, that the industry is taking a sort of AI approach where certain keywords that look like lead ups to abuse are hidden, though it has to be said that if the rest of the message is threatening or insulting, you're probably gonna be able to figure it out with context clues anyway. So do you think there's any sort of AI sort of based solution in this realm or does the problem really need to be attacked from a different direction? I think the problem with AI in this space particularly Mm -hmm. is that language is very, very contextual. And if you spend any time uh, in any kind of uh, dark web forum, terrorist forum, hacker forum, uh, soccer forum, frankly, the Mm -hmm. language uh, of those groups um, becomes uh, quite esoteric and hard to follow because there's lots of in-gags. It's very coded. Very coded. Lots of coded referential. And that's not necessarily like some kind of obscure terrorist technique. Go and try and talk to some people from Birmingham where I'm from about my local football club. You wouldn't understand half of it. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, it's just what happens when humans get together and they create trust networks is that they create language that go along with those networks. So, so the AI, I'm not saying, obviously advances in AI, there are some probably uh, advances you could make, but I don't think it's a near-term solution. And, and yeah. you know, it, the the context and uh, setting of how you say something is, I'm going like, I'm going to kill you. Now, mm-hmm. that could be said in a jokey way, ironic mm-hmm. way, uh, yep. all kinds of ways. Yep. And one of those ways is menacing, uh, but 20 of the other versions of it aren't. You know, yep, so yep, so that yep. and and that's often the challenge on the internet or or mm-hmm. on it with digital uh, media is that you just see the text. I'm going to kill you, and, and out of context mm-hmm. of what was going on in that stream, or you know, is it is it game related? Is it what is it related to? Yes. Uh, often you just see the snippet, and it, and it's very difficult to to relate to it. So so I I I think near term, um, it's not. I, I think it's 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 still human analysis is required, and it's no accident that you know Facebook or Meta, as we're now calling it, um, mm-hmm. has you know hundreds of content moderation humans looking at this stuff yeah. rather than you know an AI system. If they could, they would have put one in because it's more cost effective. But they clearly oh, yeah. can't. And there's you know stories of the of of content monitors burning out because they're just having to look at so much disgusting stuff every single yeah, day and, that it's you're, and, and you're literally destroying problem. people's psyches yeah 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 and, and that's a real problem and i think mm-hmm. um you know that uh is something we we've, we've looked at and had to address and do training yep. and and cancel, offer counseling for and be clear about what this is and, and some of those mm-hmm. things was yes you know, so, some of the times because sort of some of these environments were completely new um you know, uh, it, it was news to us that these things even existed. And then you start looking at them, um, you know, you, you have to, again, we had to catch policy up with what was happening in, in these sort of unpleasant corners of the internet. Yeah. So from a, secu- a personal security standpoint, do you have any suggestions for safeguards that content creators and influencers should be immediately putting into place if they haven't already to keep themselves safer from things like doxing, stalking or other physical and in, in the real life outgrowths of abuse? Yeah, I do. Uh, I've thought a lot about this. I actually think um, if you look at any kind of security threat, uh, you always 
to use the parlance of the industry, want to move to the left of the boom and that yep. every attack has to be researched. Uh, everything mm-hmm. that somebody wants to do to you uh, as an individual or as an organization has to be researched. So information control is really key. Mm-hmm. And around uh, influencers, um, they really need to think very seriously about privacy controls and removing their personal data from the internet as much as they can. Concentric has has built a a sort of industry-leading service for this. And Mm -hmm. what we do in that space is uh, identify what's out there, remove it, and then uh, best we can confuse the algorithms going after after that data and meshing it all back together again. So, so we have quite a sophisticated program in that to protect people's privacy because, frankly, that's the first line of defense. Um, mm-hmm. I think after that, uh, you should look at your personal network security, your personal cyber security. These are yeah. not uh, to be taken lightly, obviously, um, you know, how you set up your compute environments just at the network level is important. There's some good services that uh, we recommend and we put in around network security. You mm-hmm. don't want to be hacked. But then there's also some simple things, frankly, you know, around just using two-factor authentication and how you set up your things. You would be amazed how many people don't do that and use yeah. password managers. And honestly, it 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 we, we do a, a nice sort of checklist and um things like that to kind of just take people through the process because it's a lot if you haven't done it before you know and then you know you do have to address the kinetic um Mm -hmm. so if your threats uh escalate just understanding what residential security measures can be taken again that's probably where you're going to receive the most threat anywhere somebody knows where you're going to be and it's predictable most of us stay eight hours in one place uh during the day because we're asleep there Mm -hmm. so understanding Mm -hmm. that and, and potentially having some security around that we've done some interesting things in the past as well around uh swatting where we've spoken to local police departments on behalf of clients because you know to understand that that potentially is a threat because if you get that 911 call it's been faked out to that address so there's, there's some sophistication there that oh. we've gotten involved in to prevent that and then i actually think the final thing is probably just uh, active monitoring of information about you as well if you are someone that is potentially open to the, to a rapid threat emerging uh, you need a team uh, of people to look out for that because it could emerge from any time, anywhere, anything. And so then, you know, at least you've got some forewarning and you could take some other security measures. Now, what's interesting about all of that is I haven't mentioned once guns or armored armored cars or anything right. like that, right? right? We're in a totally different world. I mean, if you're getting down to that level, something seriously has gone wrong. I hope we never <laughs> <Yeah>. get there. <laughs> right, that's right. One, that's 1%, you know, but mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think these other things are pretty non-kinetic and, and really, um, I, I, if you're work is in this uh, personal promotion and, and streaming and all of that. So I, I think most people who are in that space should, should adopt some of these measures, if not yeah. all of them. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's really good advice too. Uh, sort of knowing in advance, if this happens, these are the the steps you take. Cause I think, you know, if the first time it happens, you're probably terrified enough without having to think, okay, now who do I actually report this to? What do I do now? You know? So yeah. Knowing, knowing in advance, like, you know, it's like, it's like building a, like a will or a, you know, like you're right. Yeah. So that's uh, right. that, having that, a plan in advance and, and having a, you know, you know, having a, a trusted company you can work with because that's yep. uh, most people don't wake up in the morning and think, Oh gosh, you know, I'm going to be under security threat today. Let me look in the yellow pages and find it. It's, yeah. It doesn't work like that. No, so find, finding, you know, doing some of this work, a lot of the work we do, 
actually is uh just you know meeting people just telling you know here's here's some things to do call us if you need us because okay. you know the, the last thing you want as as you mentioned in the intro i did run a security team for someone who was under direct assassination threat for a couple mm-hmm. of years and mm-hmm. so that one the one thing that teaches you is that you never want to live like that <laughs> that is <laughs> yeah boring. i can imagine but having armed men with guns and and actually being transported in armored cars all day is <laughs> is not what you want to do so so you know anything before that uh is is, is a better solution and preparation <laughs> an yeah. ounce of preparation as they say is worth a million dollars of defense so Absolutely. So uh, turning to a job slash career standpoint, what types of cybersecurity jobs are open up by focusing more on changing and mitigating this type of online harassment? I mean, for listeners who want to get involved in improving security in this way for these type of people, like what kind of ways can they get involved, improve their skills and really move the, the needle on online harassment? Yeah, I, I, I've been thinking about that. I think, you know, the cybersecurity industry is, is it's a massive behemoth, you know, mm-hmm. lumbering uh, down the tracks. Um, and and there's the big companies, you know, have lots of things going on. Um, but really, what if if you're starting out in career and what would be new? Uh, I mean, honestly, I, I have um, young people that I, I talk to, and I I just keep pointing them at blockchain. And if you're particularly interested in this topic, I think the identity management opportunities that blockchain might offer, I think are fascinating. And and then also thinking those things through in terms of, okay, so on the defensive side, that's interesting. But it's also interesting on the offensive side, if I go work for a company and they get a bunch of threats, how do we identify those people mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. how do we how do we kind of make sure we've got the right people and say to them, yep. uh, you can never use our service again because you know you're you've done some bad things on our platform. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the personal identity piece of this is really interesting on a on a you know uh, on, on both sides, defensive and offensive, going to look at those things. So, but but uh, yeah, advice to people getting into the industry. I honestly think the innovation and the energy around blockchain solutions right now, we mm-hmm. all know uh, 10% of these things will work, but the 10% that will work on, on what's been called web three are going to be pretty interesting. And that if you're younger, that's where you want to be. Okay. So obviously the people that, that, you know, some people are never going to take this advice, but for the vast majority of people who watch gaming streams, vlogger content, makeup tutorials, listen to podcasts, what advice do you have to exercise online courtesy to make the people who you tune into enjoy, uh, to make their work less stressful? I mean, it's, I think I think online is real life, right? I mean, yeah. I would just say that uh, I wouldn't say something to someone uh, that um, that you wouldn't want to hear yourself, you know. Um, right. But I'd also say, with a mind to what we've been talking about, uh, maybe think um, don't say anything that you wouldn't be prepared to have read back to you in a court of law. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. So uh, as we wrap up today, uh, you, you talked a little bit about concentric, but if you want to uh, sort of talk about your 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 parcel of products and, and what services you uh, you provide, please uh, feel free to do so here. Oh, thank you. Um, well, yeah, if you want to find out more about Concentric, the website is concentric.io. Um, okay. In terms of products for this, we uh, are introducing a new suite of digital services in the new year, um, uh, particularly around cybersecurity and network security, which I think would be ideal for for influencer community. And we're very interested in that. Hmm. Um, so um, I, I, the 
obviously all other security things we do. I mean, we're, we're a full service security company, but we're very focused on uh, getting uh, more involved with the influencer community and gaming community right now because we think there's a there's a need there that hasn't yeah. been met. So, um, we have some deep experience in it. Both on the cybersecurity side and on the on the information warfare side, if you will. So we're, so we're unique in being able to mesh these two things together. So so I think those that's certainly my focus. And um, you know, the rest of the company will continue to do its great work around security delivery and tactical delivery and all the rest of it. But being the guy that uh, yeah helps promote the new stuff, uh, I think us getting into that space will be tremendous. Uh, so, and, and personally speaking, uh, if our listeners want to learn more specifically about Roderick Jones, do you have a, a Twitter account or a LinkedIn or anything you want to send them to? No, I have LinkedIn. No. I mean, you just yeah. have Roderick and Roderick Jones and LinkedIn. It's 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 not disguised in any way. So I'm there, uh, always uh, always open to messages in that space. Um, but uh, I don't do any of the other social stuff too much. I have a, like a. A 2006 Twitter account or something, which would be like four <laughs> posts. I guess I got one of the original yeah. ones, right? Is so this thing on? Just, yeah, right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Once a year, you know, it's yeah. a sort of long form posting of Twitter, but uh, nothing it. exciting for a while. Makes sense. Okay. Well, Roderick, thank you for joining me today and for all your insights. This was, uh, this was really enlightening. I appreciate it. Thank you, Chris. Uh, and as always, thank you to everyone listening to and supporting the show. New episodes of the Cyborg Podcast are available every Monday at 1 p.m. Central, both on video at our YouTube page and on audio wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. I'm excited to announce that our InfoSec Skills platform will be releasing a new challenge every month with three hands-on labs to put your cyber skills to the test. Each month, you'll build new skills ranging from secure coding to penetration testing to advanced persistent threats and everything in between. Plus, we're giving away $1,000 worth of prizes each month. Just go to infosecinstitute.com slash challenge and get started right now. Thank you once again to Roderick Jones and Concentric, and thank you all for watching and listening. We'll speak to you next week. How about some free cybersecurity training resources for you and your team? Just go to infosecinstitute.com slash free to get ebooks, training guides, and more than 100 cybersecurity training courses, all free for cyber work listeners. Go to infosecinstitute.com slash free and start learning crucial new skills today.